Well, and John, uh, the other thing that a lot of lawyers are looking at is the prospect of waiving their right to a jury trial and allowing the judge to make the decision in a civil case. What's your reaction to that option? It's mixed. I mean, I think generally my standpoint is always you're better off with a jury trial. I think you want to have your a jury of your peers making the decision for you. But there are certain circumstances where I think having a judge make the decision could be beneficial. And the best example I could give is in my world, they, we have these cases which are called low impact soft tissue cases or a minimal impact motor vehicle accident. So let's say someone's involved in a motor vehicle accident and they're you know, claiming serious injuries from the accident, but there's very minimal damage to their vehicle from the accident. There's a tendency for jurors to sometimes uh, go to the extremes on those and basically what we call give a zero verdict. Even though the, the person has injuries, they sought immediate medical care. They may give the, the actual individual that was injured in the car accident zero, award them no money at all. I think it's far less likely that a judge would do that than a, uh, a jury would. But then also you have then have to weigh um, the issue of what are the benefits of using the judge, but what are the ultimate potential pitfalls? And, you know, the other issue you run into is the judge may not buy into the full extent of the future damages and things like that and ultimately get the, the result that you may get with a jury as well. So it's it's a bit of, you know, kind of... I would say case-by-case case analysis, in my opinion. There are cases I think that in the civil world may be appropriate for a, uh, a bench trial, but there are definitely cases where you're going to in no way ever recommend to your client to uh, agree to a bench trial or agree to a Zoom trial or anything like that because of the facts and circumstances that go around it. But there are cases I could see where it might be beneficial to have a bench trial. And one of the benefits, too, is it, it's a cost benefit, too, on the, the civil side is you may be able to get a judge to agree to just review medical records and base the decision on the medical records. And then the plaintiff is not having to spend tens of thousands of dollars in bringing in all of these medical experts to come in and testify. So there are some benefits associated with a potential bench trial. But, you know, those are things I think we'll have to cross those proverbial bridges as we get to them and ultimately make a decision on um, a case-by-case -case basis. But I do foresee uh, judges in the future trying to push civil litigants to bench trials. Basically, the, the way I foresee in my educated guess of how that may occur is they're going to say, okay, it's now, you know, let's say January 1st, 2021. I'll give you a jury trial August 1st of 2022, or you can have a bench trial three months down the road from now. So that, 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 that's going to be something you'll have to weigh as well. Well, I think that, 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 that piece you just described is important, and that is the judges are going to give you the either-or. Yes. And then you got to balance it, you know, because in, in the world that I litigate over property losses, if you've got a 25-story high-rise that was destroyed by Hurricane Irma, which is three years ago, and the idea that you're going to stall another year and a half just so that you have the opportunity to potentially get a jury trial, then maybe you should examine that issue. But having uh, spoken recently with uh, our law partner, Morgan Barfield, 
the he has a case in a particular uh, jurisdiction, local jurisdiction, where we discuss the prospect of waiving the right to a jury trial and allowing the judge to proceed. The when we roundtable that, we all agreed it was a bad idea, and that's in large part because the particular judge involved, we believe, has a bit of a bias against. Uh, cases like those that we file, and that just—that's a reality—is that there are going to be judges out there who don't like uh, sinkhole cases. They don't like hurricane losses. They—they uh, they just don't. I don't. You know, they have their own issues with that. You know, and I think I'd also add the comment that I don't know if most people outside of the trial world know how hard judges will push on parties to resolve a case rather than go to jury. And that's because of the cost involved in it and the complexity of that, the, you know, the number of court staff that have to be involved to pull off a jury trial between the clerks who are managing all the data and information as it comes in the, for the bailiff and obviously the judge who has to work not just within the confines of the eight hours that we're in the courtroom, but also has to use the evening time and the early morning time to address issues that come up day to day. Let's let's change directions just a little bit, but let's stay in 2020 and talk about so much of the issues, socio-political issues that are popping up. So my question to you, John, is: Let's say you're going to pick a jury um, in uh, next month. Do you talk to the jurors about their feelings about George Floyd, even if your case has nothing to do with civil rights and it's just a personal injury case, but I there think, may be people of color involved? What is your reaction to that? I think it's a slippery slope, I guess, is the best answer I can give. I mean, you may not even get be allowed by the judge to ask about it. So there's a chance the judge could shut you down or your opposing counsel could object to it being... Uh, depending on the line of questioning, that it's improper or dire, and you may get shut down right in the beginning. Um, but if it is allowed, it is a slippery slope because, um, it, and I would say it also depends on your client. I mean, you know, if you have an African-American client, and I think it may be something that somehow needs to be addressed. And sometimes some people are willing to just, unfortunately, talk about it like it's not, uh, when I say talk about, talk about their, their own personal racism, um, like it's not a big deal. I mean, the best example I can give is the last jury trial I had. My client was an African-American female. And one of the potential jurors in the middle of jury selection raised her hand and said, I see that your client's black and I don't believe what black people say. And I'm paraphrasing what she said, but that was in essence what she said. And it blew my mind to think that uh, it's obvious that people still think that way, and it's extremely unfortunate. But in a strange way, it was also fortunate for my client that that woman had the gall to say something like that, because at least we got an honest answer out of her, and we knew there was no way we ever wanted her on our jury. And then it also opened the door to allow that to be discussed a bit. So I think in a way, I know I'm not really answering the question directly, but I think it's something that on a case-by-case basis, depending on who your client is, that it needs, it, it could be addressed, assuming the judge allows it, because it really is a, a gray area in the law on how far you can go and what the judge may allow you to ask about uh, race during jury selection. 
but it's an unspoken issue in the room. I can't tell you how many trials I've had where I've had an African-American client and the 21, 24, 30 potential jurors come in and not a single one of them or one of them seem to look of the, the same ethnic background as my client. So you potentially don't even have a potential juror of your peers from the get-go, from the moment that potential jury panel walks in the door. So I think it's something that should be addressed. It should be allowed to be addressed, but um, it's going to potentially have to litigate itself out in the courtroom because I know there's going to be attorneys that are going to address it, and there are going to be judges that shut it down and don't allow it, and it's probably going to have to go up through the appeals process, and the appeals courts are going to have to make decisions on are the those types of questions going to be allowed more regularly during jury selection. So I know that's a long roundabout, not direct answer, but I think that's kind of where we're going to be going in the future. Justin, are you going to ask potential jurors about the issue of how race might come into play in uh, decision-making? Um, if, especially if my client is black, I will ask it. I would assume the judges will allow me to. If they do not, I probably will... Uh, perfect the record by just having the jury go out, asking the questions to put them on the record, and just ready for the appeal. Um, I, I obviously, if it involves any police misconduct of any kind, whether physical or not, it, I, I think it would be malpractice not to ask it. And even if your client is white, it depends on, you know, what is the defense of the case. If it, again, if it involves police doing anything wrong, you might. I would think you'd want to ask. I mean, the jury selection process is a great time to ask a lot of questions. And most judges, unless it is very inappropriate, will let you ask a lot or at least put, dip a toe into a topic, see where it gets you, and see what kind of answers you get. I'd be, I would be surprised if the judges would shut us down. I intend to ask it. I have a case. I don't know what's going to go to trial, obviously, but involves a black defendant accused of murder, and we have some... There's no violence with the police, but there's some allegations that they we don't like how they did their investigation. And so, I mean, I want to get into that just to see what they the jurors think about police investigations and African American defendants. So, but we'll see what happens. That might, like I said, that might not be until 2021. Yeah. Right. Well, I can, you know, I have a case right now that's set for trial in September. We don't expect it to go in September because of the circumstances, but it involves a uh, married couple where the uh, husband died and the insurance company is refusing to pay a life insurance policy. An examination of the medical records reflects that there were comments made in the medical record that we believe are based upon the attitudes of the juror, I'm sorry, not the jurors, the attitudes of the medical staff because there's documented evidence uh, in, I think we've, we've talked about for, as a jury consultant in the past, that when people of color come into an emergency room, they don't get the same treatment as they do if, say, I walk in an emergency room as a middle-aged white guy. And you can, and then those errors in the medical record, and they are errors, end up bouncing around in the record, and then ultimately affect treatment, 
and ultimately become some of the issues that we're going to have to litigate in front of the jury. And when that happens, that's why we need to understand, I don't know if the judge would let me say it, but all right, option one, option two, black lives matter or all lives matter, where do you fall? And if I get somebody who jumps up and starts talking about how, you know, why are we giving one group of individuals uh, something more than the other? That's the idea of the all lives matter, which I reject. I think people who say all lives matter don't really understand what it means to say black lives matter, but that's a different podcast. But it is this idea that I have had situations where one of the litigants was a person of color. And when that person was testifying, we, you know, we, we had to ask in advance how they were going to react to certain things that he said that they were associating with his, you know, his attitudes as a person of color. So it's, I agree with you. I, I think that it is one of those things where when that question gets asked, you know, we've all seen that where you ask a certain question to the whole jury veneer and the people just, their hands just shoot right up. And I think that's what's going to happen with a lot of this. And I even think that a lot of the things that are happening, uh, you know, from a public protest perspective, that those individual things are going to have effects, not just on people of color, but also people who are now more suspicious of institutional responses, yeah, you, you know, the, be it the police department or a hospital. And well, do we, what else do we see going on in 2020? Uh, my goodness, we have the election coming up. And I think that that in and of itself is going to make jury trials in 2020 pretty difficult. Uh, just because the, the strength of how people feel about so many of the things that are going on. Addressing the Black Lives Matter issue or the All Lives Matter, whatever that is, issue, there is this piece as well that the, uh, I think the data I saw said that four years ago or however many years ago when the Black Lives Matter was kind of born, that 30% of the people in the population supported the, uh, the concept that we needed to, you know, we need to examine how we value the lives of people of color. That number has now doubled and that now more than 60% of the people polled that I've seen believe that there is a need for uh, institutional change to deal with systemic racism. And so it almost seems to me that these issues regarding race uh, have, they're now on the table. And now we have to be able to find out when we pick juries, if we're gonna have someone on the panel who is withholding those kinds of statements uh, about racism because they, they don't want us to know that they're doing that. I mean, John, your example of a juror actually raising their hand and saying that they don't trust people of color um, I, I, my recollection is I remember we talked about that when it happened and uh, I won't mention uh, what county it was but in Florida, but I somehow think that, that that doesn't surprise me that that would have come out of that county. I mean, you, what, have, have you seen big changes in attitudes based upon what county you're in? Have you seen that? A hundred percent. I mean, you're in a... I, 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 
if I have a client that's African American and I'm in a more conservative rural county, that goes into my advice and analysis as to whether or not they should risk going to a trial or not. Because if you are African American and you're in your case is pending in one of these counties, it could have a profound impact on the outcome. I mean, you could have the exact same case presented in the exact same way in that county and then pre presented in a more urban county and you have polar opposite results is a possibility. Um, so it absolutely has to go into your analysis as an attorney. Uh, you're not just, you can't base your advice to your clients just on solely the black letter of the law. You have to advise them on the totality of the circumstances. And unfortunately, if you have a client that's a minority, part of that is the analysis of the color of their skin and that how, how that could impact the outcome of their trial as heinous and horrible as that is it's an unfortunate reality of the system that we live in and ultimately i think part of the uh systemic racism that we as a society hopefully will be able to root out one day and get rid of but i've definitely seen it in practice a hundred percent i've seen it as well i mean when i first left the prosecutor's office i did a lot of work in a similar county to probably the one that John's case happened in maybe the same county. And I would talk to one of my clients who were African-American. I would say, you know, if we were in Hillsborough County, this would be, this this trial could go a different way, especially if it's a case where my client may testify and he's asking the, the jury to believe what he says over the officers. You know, that's something I tell him. I say, it's not right. It's not what I wish, but this is the situation we're in. So if you're going to do this, you need to know going in that we're, you know, at a disadvantage in that area, which isn't fair, but we need to know it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's you know I think we're we're a little bit like doctors in that regard. You know, doctors can't ignore information. You know, in the in the blood, they got they have to uh, they take it as they get it. Um, I and I'm also aware I'm a I'm a big opponent opponent to capital punishment and. Much of that, well, there's multiple reasons why, but one thing I would mention here is the idea that the number one variable that affects the decision to give someone the death penalty as opposed to life in prison has to do with the race of the victim. And that would mean that if you were in a particular case, in a particular jurisdiction, where you had a white victim and an African-American defendant, that is going to be the most likely, the, the, the fruitful area for the defendant to get the death penalty. And if that's true, and I believe it is, that would mean we really have some issues associated with the race that are gonna have to be resolved. But I also don't believe that, you know, a jury instruction from a judge that says that you have to set aside your own prejudices. I think that's a fool's errand. I don't, that's the thing about prejudice. That's the thing about racism. If it's baked into your head, somebody can't just ask you to stop. And, you know, so if you're on a jury panel and you get the jury instructions and you go back in the other room, I can't see somebody pulling out the jury instruction that says ignore prejudices. And everyone goes, oh, that's right. I'm going to leave my prejudice at the jury door. I, well, I don't think that works. And I, you know, I go and, to this life over death seminar every year, um, which you need. Um, I'm trying to be death uh, first chair qualified. And they are starting to get worried about what they call stealth jurors. 
is people who don't who aren't honest with jury selection. This goes back to what you're we talking about, the questions you can ask. They don't have to answer them honestly. Well, we don't know when they actually believe. And these and they're worried. It doesn't happen often, but some people just want to get on the jury to, you know, and unfortunately more times than not, the stealth jurors are not the ones that are trying to acquit someone for no reason. They're trying to convict someone. And obviously, you never know how often that happens, but it is a worry now. Well, I, I know I, uh, it, well, we were talking earlier about the fact that a lot of the judges are, were reporting in New York that they, if they sent out 100, 100 juror summons, that of uh, those 100, they'd usually get 80 of them, and the other 20 wouldn't show up. And now they're saying it's the other way around. They'll send out 100, and only 20 will show up. And my belief is, much to your point, those that twenty percent of the jurors—that's where those stealth jurors are. Um, I once picked a jury uh, where the judge put twenty-four jurors in the box, and we were trying to pick six. And because of many of their comments uh, about my client. It was a corporate defendant I was representing at the time, but I remember at the just before lunch, the judge said to me, Mr. Corliss, there's 24 jurors in the box. How many jurors do you think you're going to move to strike because of different things they've said uh, negative to your client? And I said, all of them? And he said, what? And I, he said, you're gonna strike 24 jurors? Maybe watch me and he goes well when we come back from lunch you can try that kind of rolled his eyes and then we come back and the first thing he says because he wants to make sure on the record he's not sitting on me mr corliss if you give me a reason to strike any of these 24 jurors i will i'm just going to be curious whether you're going to be able to do that about two hours later uh he struck 20 of 24 jurors but dealing with prejudice and, uh, you know, I guess this is a good place to end. Uh, you know, gentlemen, I, I think it's so important that we're having this conversation. And I, uh, I want to give you uh, last comments on anything you want to say. John, what's, what's your big goal for the next 18 months? The big goal is to keep my cases moving and uh, do the best I can for my clients under the the circumstances we're in. I mean, I think it's a lot easier. It doesn't mean it's an easy task, but I think being in the civil sector, there's more tools in your toolbox to uh, help either resolve cases or move them forward than let's say Justin has in his toolbox with the criminal cases because there's, you know, someone's actual, you know, freedom at, at, uh, is, at risk in a criminal case and they have additional constitutional rights and obviously Justin can talk about that but my goal for the would be to just continue to get the best results I can for my clients under these unfortunate circumstances and hope that the cases that are currently in litigation and maybe steering towards a jury trial don't get bogged down in extraordinary delays right good well uh Justin how about you what what are, what are you hoping uh, to accomplish over these next 18 months. So it's kind of twofold so for me because I have two types of cases. I do some work for the state where I handle first-degree homicide cases. <laughs> for those cases, there's not a lot to be done. It's just, unfortunately, you know, if it's going to trial, it's just a waiting game. So you're just trying to deal with your client who is very frustrated for having to sit all this time. 
sometimes I have one case that we might be able to work out because COVID is going to keep kicking the trial. But at the same time, there was a life lost. So there's only so much we can do there. We're talking about decades in prison. But on the other hand, some of my, my lower cases, and you know, I, I hate to say this, I don't want people committing crimes, but COVID is, is making it easier to get better deals because the prosecutor doesn't want to deal with these, you know, simple possession cases, maybe even burglary of a vehicle cases, because they have 10 murder cases they have to try. They have all these, you know, aggravated assaults. So I've gotten some pretty good deals. So for those cases, I'm trying to work out the cases as quickly and as for as easily as I can, whereas the homicide cases, you're just trying to, you know, I have three open right now. I don't know how we're going to try them all in 2021, but we're going to try. Well, well, I want to, again, uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on today. And I remind those of you who uh, do not know who Justin is, Justin, Justin Petratus is with the, uh, the law office of Justin Petratus. And I, will you pronounce that for me? One Sorry, more Justin Petratus. No problem. Petratus, I apologize. But I, you know, I, one of the things that I like to tell people about trial lawyers is not all lawyers are trial lawyers. Some lawyers are corporate lawyers. Some lawyers are litigators, but they're not trial lawyers. You know, you want to look to a guy like Justin uh, as a former state attorney for eight years. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, for eight years. And in addition to that, uh, has handled more than a half a dozen homicide trials. And as the co-chair of Hillsborough County Bar Association's criminal law section for five years, he is very much on the cutting edge of what's going on in the courtroom when a criminal litigant is involved. And so I, I, if you are looking for someone who has a lot of experience, regardless of the severity of the crime, you should take a good look at Justin. And of course, my partner, John Mulvihill, extensive experience as a state attorney, but also uh, many, many years and cases on the civil front uh, doing personal injury cases that matter. And uh, we, you can go and learn more about John by going to our website at www.corlisbarfield.com. And then there's little old Ted, that's me, Ted Corliss. I'm a property insurance lawyer. You can learn more about my background and most of the clients that I represent are a little bit more narrow than these two gentlemen. But at the same time, uh, we're continuing to look to see what we can do to provide better support to our clients in uh, fighting insurance companies who we're kind of hoping that as 2020 plays out, many of those insurance companies are going to lose steam, uh, especially on the cases that they probably should have paid when the claims were originally submitted. And so we always appreciate hearing from individuals who listen to our podcasts and you can always email us at S-E-R-V-I-C-E at Corliss Barfield com, or we also have a broad spectrum of social media options to track or to communicate back with us. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in today. Uh, be safe out there. Uh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy world with all the infections. And, but I also uh, encourage people to take the opportunity to find their own personal social consciousness with so many things that are happening uh, in the world with protesting and examinations regarding institutional racism. Uh, these are things that are hot, and I'm hoping they're gonna stay hot for a very long time. My name is Ted Corliss, be well.